Good morning. How is everyone? Good. Who said good? Good. Good, Jason. It's good to be here, guys. I wish that I had an exciting story to tell you from the nursing home, but I just don't have one today. But I do want to talk to you about something very relevant. I want to talk to you about the gospel at work in the church. And when we see the gospel at work in the church, what can we expect as far as how it may manifest itself in relation to God's people? John Fawcett pastored a small church in Bradford, Maryland in 1763. And when he first started pastoring this church, him and his wife Mary, they had no parsonage. They had no home. So for approximately the first five years of their ministry, they stayed in the homes of different people. Now, being confined to such close quarters, man, did they ever learn to love people? And did the people ever learn to love them back? And when they finally did get settled into their their own home, the struggle for them was great because their salary was so poor. Now, they were promised a 25% raise, but only if they would accept that in the form of wool and potatoes. But it was during that time frame that they heard some very good news. The good news was that Dr. Gill was stepping down as pastor of Carter's Lane Baptist Church in London, and they had their eye on John Fawcett to be the next pastor. So he went, he preached, He captivated his audience, he came back, and he delivered the news that he was taking the job, and him and Mary were in full agreement. What an opportunity for him to pastor a larger church, to have a greater platform, and to be released from the financial burdens that had pressed down on him for so long. So they were in complete agreement, yes, let's do this. You know, it was very uncommon during that time for a pastor to leave a community. For the most part in that era, a pastor would be into a community, he would invest in the people, he would live, and then he would die there as he invested his gospel life into their lives. But nonetheless, this last dreadful Sunday, John Fawcett entered into this little church in Bradford, England. He preached a farewell message, he left the church, His wagons were lined up with all of their possessions. The wagons were in line. People lined the streets. People were crying. People were weeping. People were heavy-hearted. And they pleaded, Please don't leave us. Please don't go. Now what would John and Mary do? How would they respond? Maybe a better question is, how does how does congregational love interact at a moment like that? How does it begin to define? How does it begin to discern? How does it begin to determine what is needed? How does it begin to determine what is necessary? How does it begin to determine what is success or if success is even something that is needed? Well, for John Chrysostom, 
it was pretty apparent when he said this to the people that he was pastoring. He said, there is nothing I love more than you. No, not even light itself. I would gladly have my eyes put out 10,000 times over if it were possible by this means to convert your souls. So much is your salvation dearer to me than light itself. This one thing is the burden of my prayers, that I long for your advancement. But that in which I strive with is this, that I love you. That I am wrapped up in you. That you are my all. You are my father. You are my mother. You are my brethren. You are my children. Could this be a model for congregational biblical love at work in the midst of the people of God? Could this be the faucet's mindset? Could John and Mary develop this mindset? Let's find out after the message. But for now, I want you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. This is the first book that we're going to be going through as a new church. We're going to journey through the book of Philippians. And we're going to learn not only from practical instruction from Paul, but we're going to learn from his example as well. And at times we'll learn from the example of the Philippians themselves as we watch them implement Christ-centeredness, as we watch them implement gospel-centeredness. Let's read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1-6. through six. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord. God asking that you would help us to identify what the gospel would look like at work among us, in us, from us to each other. Help us to learn in this very short, simple greeting, Lord God, what we can begin to look for as we strive, as the people of God, to establish the gospel in the forefront of our minds. And we need your help, Lord. We are all in need of grace, and we would ask that you would give it in abundance to us this morning for your glory, 
for the health and the growth of your church, for the good of each other. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. There's three principles that I want to pull from these six verses. The first is this. I want to talk about how the gospel cultivates congregational gratitude. How the gospel cultivates church-wide gratitude. Second thing I want to talk about this morning is how the gospel encourages congregational confidence. And then lastly, I want to talk about how the gospel establishes congregational fellowship. So I want you to look at this first point with me as we talk about how the gospel cultivates congregational gratitude. Let's reread verses 3 through 5, please. Paul said, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. So there's that element of gratitude. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You know, we've often talked about the need for the gospel to be of first importance to the people of God. And what we want to do as believers is simply respond to the biblical suggestion that we are a broken people. And it is by necessity that we make our way back to the cross. Back to that place where we were not only initially changed but back to that place where we as the people of God are continually changed. But the question that arises is, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ draw us closer together as the people of God? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ develop a sense of gratitude among us as we fellowship with one another? Well, I think in order to answer that, we may need to be very clear about what the intent of the gospel is. And I want to assure you this morning, beloved, that the intent of the gospel is so much more than the modification of our behavior. The intent of the gospel is so much more than establishing a plumb line for morality that hopefully we'll all be on the same page about at some point. The intention of the gospel has as its foundation, so much more than just establishing purpose for our lives. And I even want to say this morning that at the root of the gospel, there is so much more involved than even being relational with God because at the very root and at the very core of the gospel, its intention is to bring to our attention the reality that we need God to do for us what we will never be able to do of ourselves. We need God to clothe us in His Son's righteousness so that as we go before Him now, and the Bible says we can do that in boldness, as we stand before Him now, and as our lives are a preparation for that time when we will stand before Him, possibly, prayerfully, hopefully in the near future, we need to know that we can stand before Him with confidence, but because we are clothed in the righteousness of another and not our own. And that other one, of course, is namely Jesus Christ. The gospel never has an application that would suggest that we can do anything for Jesus Christ. 
Rather, it redirects us to the reality that we must have Christ to do everything for us. Kevin DeYoung states, The secret of the gospel is that we actually do more when we hear less about all we need to do for God and hear more about all that God has already done for us. In other words, the gospel really begins to take effect in a person's life when they're simply reminded of the reality that we need God to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves, and God has already accomplished that through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that, beloved, is the tone behind Paul's greetings to the Philippian church. That is the tone behind Paul's thankfulness for the Philippians. Paul thanks God for them because God is doing something in a people that these people cannot do on their own. And in order to see the heart of Paul's thankfulness, in order to see the depth of Paul's thankfulness for the Philippians, we, like Paul, must look beyond the Philippians. We can't thank God for the Philippians with the Philippians in the forefront, with the Philippians in view. We, like Paul, look beyond the Philippians to God Himself in order to thank God for the Philippians. The key to Paul's joyful remembrance of the Philippians, the key to Paul's gratitude for the Philippians, the key to our gratitude that we, beloved, must and strive and need to have for each other comes from the fact that we see in Paul that Paul is not reflecting on the faithfulness of a people. Paul is reflecting on the faithfulness of God who is at work in a people. Paul was a first-hand witness of the reality that God was taking the initiative and that God was at work in the lives of these people. And Paul's remembering it. <clears throat> Paul's sitting here, he's thinking about these people known as the Philippians, and his mind is going back. His mind is going back to that time because, see, it wasn't in Paul's design to go to Macedonia. Paul's intent was to go north to Bithynia. God intervened through his Holy Spirit in a very dramatic way, led him west instead of north, and he ended up in Macedonia and planted the first church in Europe known as the Philippian church. And we read about it in Acts 16, 9 and 10, which says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul was not only a witness, but he's remembering. He's remembering that it was God's initiative and God's power that opened up Lydia's heart in order to believe the gospel that she heard from Paul. Paul is remembering that it is the authority of Christ that caused the demon-possessed slave girl to be freed from her demon possession. Paul is remembering that it is the initiative and the power of God that caused the Philippian jailer to stop what he was doing and cry out, what must I do in order to be saved? And we can have that same sense of gratitude for each other 
that Paul had for the Philippian church as we reflect on God and as we thank God, not because we're faithful to each other, but we reflect on God and we thank God because of His faithfulness to be at work in us, and He does that in large part by giving us each other. Isn't that really kind of the core idea behind the value of covenant relationships anyway? I mean, really, isn't the core idea that that highlights the value of any type of covenant relationship, isn't, isn't that idea based upon the fact that there's a glue, there's a center, there's a cement, there's a perseverance that goes way beyond us, way beyond, way outside of our abilities. John MacArthur said, I don't even like to use the word, the wordage, perseverance of the saints, because it suggests that it's something that the saints do. And we don't have the ability to do that. Listen, that's the core of the covenant relationship that I have with my wife. Now, if you were go, if you were to go to my wife and say, do you trust Moon? I think that hands down she would say, Absolutely, I trust my husband. Yes, I do. But when you begin to probe a little bit deeper into her thinking, what you're going to begin to see come to surface is the reality that her confidence is not in a man she married. Her hope for a fruitful marriage is not in a man she married. The hope that that she would possibly have a fruitful marriage is found in her comfort and the hope that she has on the faithfulness of God to be at work in His people because of the value that God places on covenant relationships. That's why Paul can say with great certainty, with great boldness, what he does in verse 6. Look at that with me. Look at what Paul says. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now listen, Paul is addressing a people with a lot of problems. We look at the Philippian church, we know that it is a church that brought a lot of joy to Paul. The word joy, um, a synonym of that word, it's used numerous times throughout the, the, the epistle itself. We also know that the Philippians, they were not as bad as some, but listen, they still had their problems. They still had their sin issues. They had the problems that we deal with just in day-to-day life. They were extremely poverty-stricken. They were dealing with false teachers trying to make their way into the church. And aside from that, they just dealt with plain old sin like we all do. They struggled with pride. There was a conflict taking place in Philippians chapter 4, between two women that had probably went on for way far too long. And Paul, yet, he has this confidence in God to complete a work in them in spite of the fact that they're people marred by sin. And it seems as if, when you look at verse 6, Paul says, I'm sure that God is going to do this. Why? Because God has already acted upon you through the gospel. You have been acted upon by grace. And because of that fact, God will finish what God started because God has started the gospel process, listen, in your life. God will 
do this. And I want you to know that Paul's confidence in God to finish the work that he started in them, look how it's adjusting the way that he opens up his epistle to them. Because he does not first address their problem or problems. He does not first address them as a problem. He first addresses them as the partakers of the very gospel that changed their life. He first addresses them as partners, not sinners. God's faithfulness to them, God's faithfulness in them, listen, it causes their faithfulness and not their failures to shine through. Because of the faithfulness that Paul's seeing taking place in them, he can only at this point acknowledge acknowledge their faithfulness. God's faithfulness to them, God's faithfulness in them, it creates a congregational gratitude based on what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will continue to do. And I assure you that's the case for Paul, and I would bet that it's the case for the Philippians as well as they're gathered around reading this letter. Wow, look at how faithful God has been to us. God has been so faithful. I guess what I'm trying to say ultimately is that the gospel, secondly, the gospel encourages congregational confidence or church-wide confidence. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. Let's, let's reread those, please. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 6 is where we're going to camp with, with this idea. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to take note of the confidence, the level of confidence that Paul has as he's writing this epistle. And he seems to be saying, listen, I know, I know, I know that God is going to do this. Listen, listen, Odia and Syntec in the midst of this conflict that you're having, I want you to know that I know that you're going to be okay because I know that God is faithful to you and I have seen God working in your midst from, from the very first day up until now. I've seen God working. Paul's confidence is not in the fact that these are two adult grown women who have it in their heart to work this problem out. Paul's confidence is in the fact that they are a people who have already been converted. And that moves him to deal with the Philippians in a very specific way. It causes him to not first deal with them as sinners, but to first deal with them as saints. It causes him to not first deal with their problems, but to first greet them as partners. It causes him to not first approach them with the idea of initial correction, but to approach them on the platform of encouragement. And I'm going to tell you right from the outset here, as I hear that, as I see that, as I see how he's interacting with them on the outset, I'm challenged. But there's also a part of me, if I were to be quite honest, that would have to say, 
I'm a little ashamed. I think the reason that I'm a little ashamed is here we have the Apostle Paul who's in prison, separated from the Philippians by about 1,200 miles. Can't talk to them. Can't check on them. Can't see how their hearts are. Yeah, he's written this letter and it's an expression of his love, but aside from that, he doesn't even know if he's going to see these people again. At any time, Nero can call for Paul, cast the sentence down, and, and Paul's life could end. And even if Paul's released, there's no guarantee that the Philippian church will remain in existence because it's under persecution as well. And so you have this big chasm that exists between the Apostle Paul and this church that he's planted 12 years prior to this epistle. And he says, I'm confident that God's going to do this thing. And I look around at my life, and just to be honest, I fret sometimes. I'm hearing Paul say, my confidence is such that I know that God's going to do this. And I'm in one end of my house fretting over my daughters who are in the next room. Worried about, well, what are they going to be like? How are they going to turn out? Are they going to maintain their godliness? Paul's saying, I have confidence in what God's doing, and I may not ever see you again, and I don't even have the confidence at times to trust God with my own kids that I can touch, that I can talk to, that I can sit down with, that I can encourage, that I can pour myself into. Why? What's the problem? Is the problem the power of the gospel? No, no. The problem is not the power of the gospel. The problem is my remembrance of the power of the gospel. Paul's remembering. Paul's, Paul's thinking. Paul's contemplating. He saw, he saw the demon-possessed girl freed. He saw, he saw the dead come to life spiritually. He saw these things. He's remembering these things. How often do I forget the power of the gospel that, that I can say with confidence, you know what, in the midst of my humanity and my failures, I have confidence that God is going to tend to you because of the power of the gospel and the good work that he started in you <laughs> on your conversion. Man, that's a confidence, beloved, that I know that I need to cultivate more in my heart. Plus, listen, how are we corporately encouraged in the, with the reality that we are all people and our lives are in process? We are a people whose lives are in process. We're surrounded by people whose lives are in process. Billy Graham, Ruth Graham, they're driving down the road and they go through this long stretch of road construction. They have numerous slowdowns, numerous detours, numerous bumps in the road, numerous stops along the way, and then finally they reach the end of the road construction and then there's a smooth stretch of pavement laid out before them along with a sign that says, End of construction. Thank you for your patience. Ruth Graham looks at her husband Billy Graham and says, That ought to be written on the headstone of every Christian. Why? Because we are a people who are continually in process. We are a people who are different. We're different ages. We have different interests. We read different books. We like different movies. We have different views. And we wonder at times, how in the world can we get to know each other 
in the midst of our many differences? How can we come to a place where we begin to love each other in the midst of our many differences? How can we have confidence with each other and in each other in the midst of our many differences? And I believe that the Apostle Paul lays that foundation and sets the tone in his simple greeting. I believe he has the answer. And I believe that his answer is is us reflecting on his starting point with the Philippians and making his starting point our starting point. Because the reality is we all have Philippians in our lives. We all have people who are sinners in our lives. And the reality is some of us may have Corinthians in our lives. Hey, sometimes I feel like a Corinthian. Okay, So we're always confronted with those types of people. We're always surrounded by our differences. And the gospel encourages congregational or church-wide confidence, not by us first being reminded of our problems, but by first being reminded that we're all gospel partners. Why? Because of the work that Jesus Christ has started in us through the gospel. What overrides your sin issues? What overrides my sin issues? Let me tell you what it is. The reality that we're partners in the gospel. And we remind each other of that. We remind each other of the reality of what God has done for us in spite of what we can't do for ourselves. I I have identifying sin down. I've got that. Okay? I can do that well. I can identify sin in my life very well. I can identify sin in other lives very well. Before you remind me of the problem, beloved, remind me, remind me of the reality that we are partners of the gospel. Let's make that our starting point. And the reality is that this really is how the gospel establishes congregational fellowship. Let's look at verses 3 through 5, if you would. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now. Greek word for partnership is koinonia. And it's a word that is often translated in the Bible as fellowship. And it originally had commercial overtones to it. For example, in Luke 5.10, we see that James and John were partners, or they were koinonias with Simon. Now, what's that mean? They were, they were partners with Simon in relation to a fishing business. So, so what that means is they had a common vision. It means that they invested in something together. It means that they trusted each other to the point that they knew they could depend on each other if there was a time of need. If one of them needed help, if they're heaving fish up on their little boat and one needs help, the other rushes to their aid without hesitation. If they're heaving a net up on the boat and the net begins to break, they rush to the other's aid without hesitation. If tools need 
picked up or cleaned or things need gathered and one needs help or one needs the other, the other would rush to help and aid them without any type of hesitation whatsoever. And that is the type of partnership that Paul is talking about that we have with each other. We come to each other's aid and we're ready to come to each other's aid. We're ready to minister to each other at a moment's notice without any hesitation. But we don't come to each other with the the tools of the trade, so to speak. We come to each other with the gospel, prepared to invest the gospel into each other's lives. Now, that may mean that I may need to be vulnerable at times. That's what that may mean. That may mean that me as a Corinthian, might need to sit down and just really air out some dirty laundry to you as a Philippian. I might need to sit down and just really let it out. And I'm willing to do that. But I want you to understand something, is I'm willing to do that. I want you to understand that me as a Corinthian, letting all my dirty laundry loose to you as a Philippian, I want you to know that you bear responsibility as well. You bear the responsibility as a Philippian to remind me as a Corinthian of the good work that God has done for me and is doing for me. And he's working it out right now in my midst, in the midst of my sinfulness. I need you as I commit to air out my dirty laundry, as I commit to be open, as I commit to be honest. I need you to commit to remind me that we're partnerships in the gospel and I need you to remind me of that first long before you make it your business to present to me the reality that I'm a problem. I already know that. I know that. I got that. I need you to remind me of the solution. God is at work. God will complete that good thing that He started. He will do that. Why? Because He's already acted upon us with the gospel. He's already acted upon us in our conversion. And because of that, He will finish what He started. And I know what our temptation is. I know what it is. I fall into it. This is our temptation. In relation to what fellowship means, coming to each other's aid, being vulnerable, being prepared, the temptation is to allow biblical fellowship to be swallowed up by vague socializing. That's the temptation. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, man, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good, man. How's the family? Family's great. How about your family? Man, everybody's great. The kids are doing well. How's your job? Job's great. How about your job, man? Job's good. A little slow this last week, but things are well. Uh, Man, Mountaineers look good. Yeah, they do look good. Hey, man, great. Good talking to you. You too, brother. I'll see you around. And I, I I say that in jest. And I do say that in jest. Because reality is socializing with each other, it's a part of fellowship. But what we can't do, because listen, let me tell you what fellowship is. Fellowship is an inheritance to the saints. Fellowship is a means and a measure of grace to the saints. And we cannot allow our inheritance and this means of grace to be in jeopardy out of fear of being open and honest. So how do we know which one we're really doing? Well, what's socializing? 
It means that we're coming together and we're sharing about our earthly lives. We're sharing about our earthly interests. We're highlighting our earthly goals. We're focusing on our earthly struggles. We're talking about earthly governments, whereas when we come together and share in biblical fellowship, we're sharing in our spiritual lives. We're sharing in our spiritual interests. We're sharing in our spiritual goals. We're sharing our spiritual struggles. We're talking about a government that has come to change the world in which we live. And listen, I'm the first to say I need to socialize. Listen, there are times I just need it. Man, there are times I need to sit down and I just need to vent. Man, I just need to, oh, this is my life and it's, it's horrible right now and this is what's happening. This is the, this is the world that I'm living in. Here it is. I need that. You need that. We need that. But even that needs to be gauged by something above us, beyond us, outside of us. Even, even me venting about my earthly life needs to be gauged and overshadowed and lorded over by a focus on my spiritual life. That's what biblical fellowship is. Jerry Bridges said, don't just share your struggles. And above all, don't just commiserate with one another or don't just have pity for one another. Remember, we are to be ministers of grace to each other. We are to seek to be avenues of the Holy Spirit to help the other person appropriate the grace of God. Praying with and for one another sharing applicable portions of Scripture and helping each other submit to God's providential dealings with us, that must characterize our time together. Mark Dever would say, we are all called to initiate involvement in each other's lives. It's called biblical fellowship. We covenant together to work and pray for unity, to walk together in love, to exercise care and watchfulness over each other, to faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require, to assemble together, to pray for each other, to rejoice and to bear with each other, and to pray for God's help in all of this. You see, beloved, Christian fellowship is, Christian biblical fellowship is the gospel at work. Do you know why? It's God loving His people through His people. It's God serving His people through His people. It's God disciplining. It's God loving. It's God sharing. It's God caring, nurturing, fathering. And God is doing it all through His people. That's why Paul can say, I hold you in my heart in verse 7. Yeah, I know who you are. I know where you've been. I was there. But I hold you in my heart. Yes, we are as different as a Philippian jailer is 
from a demon-possessed slave girl, but I hold you in my heart. He can say that. He could say that because of the fellowship that defined them because the gospel was at work in their lives. He can say in verse 8, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Why? Because of the gospel that's at work in our lives. See, it tears down those things that makes us different because the reality is we can have so many things not in common. And we cannot, we cannot unite ourselves or become united because of any type of nature, not because of our nature, but what does cause that wall of, of disunity to come down is the grace that's been extended to us. And we say, I can relate. I've been there. I know who you were. I know who I was. God is faithful. God is so faithful to us. And it starts with initiating and imparting into us the gospel. And I believe, beloved, that when we establish as a church the gospel is of first importance, it means remembering some things, looking back, remembering the, the reality of, of, of all of that. I believe then we're going to be able to see unity that takes place that can be lacking in most churches. <clears throat> Finally, Overcome by the grief of their flock and weeping bitterly themselves, Mary looked to John and said, Oh, John, I can't bear this. I cannot bear this. I know not how to go. John Fawcett said, Nor I either. Nor will we go. The wagons were unpacked, and from that moment, the hymn Blessed be the tie that binds us was birth. That goes something like this. Blessed be the tie that binds our Christian hearts in love. The fellowship of kindred minds. Listen, the fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. It's just about God loving His people through His in the midst of whether or not I'm a Corinthian or Philippian. That's what it is. Let's pray. Father, we're, <clears throat> we're grateful to be here. And even as we gather, there may be noticeable differences. But the thing that causes us to unite and enjoy and cherish and hold this time as sacred is the reality of how you've united us. You have you have acted upon us. You've called us by name. You've saved us. You've done in us what we cannot do of ourselves. And God, we, we can celebrate that. We can invest in each other's lives because of that. We can lift up each other's arms because of that truth. We can, we can celebrate because of that. We can talk to each other regardless of backgrounds because of that. We can have fellowship. We can be engaged in ministry.
We can be about your business. You can say to us, go make disciples of all the nations. And we can say, yes, Lord, with a united voice, even though we're so different. Because we know, we know what the gospel has meant and what the gospel has done. And so I pray that we would be a people that would remember the power of the gospel and we would allow that memory to serve us and say, yes, Lord, yes, yes. I remember. I remember who I was. I remember what you've done. I pray that we'd be faithful, Lord, to the reality, the realities of the gospel for your glory. Help us to do that, Father. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.